I have been to two major church conferences. A couple of weeks ago, I was at the Southern Baptist Convention meeting down in New Orleans. There was like 12,000 messengers there. It was huge. It was big. They did a lot. Friday, I was at a church conference for Bhutanese and Nepali churches of America up in the Akron area. Pastor Kumar invited me to come up and join him for that. I knew this was going to be a challenge. My Nepali Bhutanese language skills, I have none. But I went up there and he promised to translate some for me and he did. But what I received from their conference meeting was such a blessing. They were so energized by their faith and their love of God. And all they did, the whole conference, was worship with song, worship with the spoken word, with testimonies. They recognized new churches coming in that had been formed recently. And they just had this spirit of joy in their conference. And it was a long six hours to sit there with things I didn't understand totally. And yet my spirit, the heart within me, whispered, this is what I'm about as well. May we in our Southern Baptist Convention always have that spirit among us that all we want to focus on is what Jesus is doing in the world and with our churches. And may we in this church always have that focus of what Jesus is doing in our world and in our church. We are beginning a new study. And Sylvia, if you have not noticed the board out front as you came in, Sylvia did a great job updating it from what it's been in the study of Acts to the new study in Nehemiah. And our symbol is the trowel. I dug mine out. It's got some really nasty old concrete on it. But this symbolizes hard work and building, especially in that day and age where everything was made of stone. Having been to the Holy Land, I know that when God created the world, he put extra amounts of stone in the Middle East. Everywhere you go, they have built out of it and they've left the rest of it just laying all over. There's stone everywhere. It said though, when they built the temple, and that's the study of Ezra we're not doing, but when they built the temple, that the stones were so tightly packed together that you didn't even notice whether there was or wasn't any kind of mortar in between them. That's the precision that they took in building the temple. What we want to do, we have been talking all this year about the theme of aspire. And our slogan has been a vision with the intention of becoming. When you get a vision, the Lord sometimes brings you a vision as you sleep. Sometimes he brings you a vision as you're busy about your day. Sometimes it's as you are thinking, the Lord gives you a vision, not so much that you see something, but you see something in your thinking, in your mind. When you get a vision, you don't always expect it. I'm asking that we as a church pray for a vision. 
We have been praying for a vision. Some of you have shared with me, this is how I am pursuing what God is showing me. Good for you. I want us all to be ready for God to give us a vision so that we can become. We're always growing. We're always improving. And so we need the vision of where God is moving us so that we can get out the right tools and make it happen. Remind me to take that home. I'm not sure what the Nepalis will think if it's there when they meet for church. Jeremiah 29.11, God simply says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Marcia started her study in the covenants today, and she was building this graph on the whiteboard, and she put her headings across the top, and I was looking at them, and one of them she had up there was reason, and I thought she was going to put in there the reason for that particular covenant. And what she put in there was the reason was because the world was so sinful, God made a covenant with Noah to never destroy the world again. I thought the reason was, the reason for the covenant was preservation. With the Noahic covenant, with the Abrahamic covenant, with the covenant of our Jesus, it's for preservation, for us to be preserved so that we would have a future and a hope in Him. Nehemiah, the name, simply just means Yahweh comforts. And so even when God is disciplining us, He is there to give us hope. He has a plan for us. Nehemiah was a descendant of one of those many tribes that had chosen to remain in their place of exile. When Zerubbabel began to lead the people back when they were first released by Cyrus to come back out of exile and and to move back into their land in the area around Jerusalem, there were a lot of people who actually had taken Jeremiah's words very seriously when Jeremiah said, God wants you to bless the people where you are. Pray for the people where you are. Build houses open businesses. Bless the people where you are, and in that, I will bless through you the people where you are. When it came time and some had the opportunity to go back to Israel, many remained there where they had been in exile. Apparently, must not have been all that bad. Nehemiah was one of those whose family had remained. He got a job in the courts of the king. Brandon's going to be preaching chapter 2 next week, and I'm going to let you open up with the last verse of chapter 1. I was a cupbearer. Kick that off. He stayed. His family stayed. So that's what we're looking at here. This mission, though, in this book of Nehemiah was nearly a century after Cyrus had begun to let the people go back. It was not just immediate that Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah all went and showed up at the same time. 
Zerubbabel was early in the game. Nehemiah and Ezra were later in the game. So this exile had a kind of stigma with it, obviously. If you've been a conquered nation, there's a kind of stigma to that. And yet these people, in going back home, were overcoming that conquered feel. And they were going to rebuild what God had already built there at one time. So let's read, and we're going to read the entire first chapter together. It's only, I'm leaving out the last verse, so it's only the first 11 verses. But if you'll join me, I think it's going to be on the board. And You know, Harry and I talk about this a lot. I never look up to see what's on the board. So I've given him my outline. Brandon gives him the outline. Brandon, do you ever look at the board to see what's going on up there? Occasionally. Occasionally. I never hardly look, but today I'm going to read from the board with you, okay? The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev. In the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity, I asked them about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who are loving Him and keeping His commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though, you, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the earth, heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. And I'll leave the rest of it for Brandon to pick up next week. From a historical perspective, we're beginning, let's kind of just set the stage. Nehemiah, like Esther and like Ezra, is a very small, short history book. Sometimes these three books are easy to overlook. Sometimes we might 
look at them and let their length say something to us about their importance, thinking, oh, they're short, they probably don't have much to say. That would be a mistake. This book, like the other two, this is the Word of God, first of all. It does have something to say. The story of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem after the people of Israel began to return is kind of the theme of this whole book, just the rebuilding of the walls, rebuilding of the walls, rebuilding of the walls, actually took only 52 days to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. So there's a lot more that's going to go on here besides just wall building. The book of Ezra tells us about Zerubbabel bringing the people back. He was the first to lead the people out of captivity back to the Jerusalem area. Ezra is there to rebuild the temple of God, met with a lot of resistance, just like Nehemiah is going to. But that's the story here. They came back, they've been there for a while, and now Nehemiah has come, and things are going to change. There's two major themes in Nehemiah that you need to just be listening over the next three months and hear how these play into what we're going to be talking about. The two themes are redemption and the providence of God. These two themes, God is redeeming His people. Just like the covenants were there for the preservation of His people, this book talks about the redemption of God, taking care of, bringing us back to Him. And the providence of God, meaning and ain't nothing no one else can do about it. God is sovereign. God is in charge. God will have His way. So those are the two things that you need to look at. God had a key role for His people, the Jewish nation, for them to be priests to the nations of the world. Exodus 19.6 has these words in it, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If I were to say to you in that same kind of sense, God has told me that you folks are going to be a church filled with priests and you will become a holy congregation. Holy being set apart given a specific purpose. And you will be the priest. You will be the bearers of this message that you have been set apart for. Now, that would be a pretty strong commissioning, right? That would kind of lay it on you pretty thick. If you're visiting with us today, you'd be like going, oh, wait, I don't know if this is the church I want to, you know, there might be homework. That sounds serious. It is. We are to be in the image of these folks, a nation of priests, a holy, set-apart group of people to carry the message of God's redemption into the world. Because that was what he had talked about with Moses. And then before that, he had talked about it with Abram. When he was making the covenant, again, we were talking about this down there in discussing the first covenants of the Bible. That chapter 
12 of Genesis talks about when God made a covenant with Abram. He said, basically, I'm, I'm choosing you as my people. I'll make of you a great nation. And who you bless, I will bless. Pretty nice, huh? Who you curse, I will curse. Even, like, maybe better sometimes. That's part A. Part B to this covenant with Abram was, and all the nations, who you bless, I will bless, who you curse, I will curse, and through you, all the nations will be blessed. Okay, that's the part that the Jewish people kept forgetting, that they were there primarily for all the other people. Too often we read, especially in the New Testament, about the way the Jews treated everybody else. It was kind of like, we're the Jewish nation, we're the chosen of God, and all you other people are just, we'll just call you Gentiles. Doesn't matter what you believe, where you came from, you're just like not in. We are here, church, to be a blessing to all nations, a blessing to your neighbors, a blessing to your employers and your fellow employees, a blessing to your family, a blessing to your friends. We are here, here to be a blessing. And not just, oh, I'm going to go out and mow somebody's yard and, and bless them that way because, you know, I like to do that. But we're to be the blessing of bringing them the good news of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I will mow the neighbor's yard and I hopefully get the chance to talk to them about, why did you do that? You don't have to mow my yard. I know, I just wanted to bless you. What? What? And then maybe I can talk a little Jesus with them. You are to be the blessing, church, family, so that God can bless through you, not just curse those who you curse, but primarily bless those who you bless. Same group, same thing. Jerusalem was a city built on a hill. It was supposed to be a light to all the surrounding nations around it. This is the rule of God that is going to just stream out from this location. So, God is ultimately the initiator of His kingdom being built. And we are His stewards. We are His builders. We are His trial carriers. And there's, there's a thing that we'll read about when they're building the wall, when they're, you know, intimidated by the enemies of the nation, that they have to work with one hand and carry a spear in the other. They have to be ready. We are to be a nation, a church, a group of His choosing so that He can bless the world. And some of us have this kind of tool. Some of us have other kinds of tools. But whatever tool that you have that fits well in your hand, you're supposed to use that for the glory of God so that His Word goes forth. The second temple period is what we're going to be looking at that Ezra goes back in to rebuild. This was from 516 B.C. to about 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem after the death and resurrection of Jesus 
in the beginning of the church. Solomon built his original temple in 968 B.C. Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple in 515 B.C. Herod came along and basically dismantled the temple that was rebuilt and made it newer, shinier, whatever. And he did that to replace it in about 19 B.C., about 20 years before Jesus came. These are the three temples that you'll read about in Scripture. The temple that Jesus worshipped in was the temple that Herod had built, not Ezra. So this time period, this this accounting in history is very key to the nation of Israel, but it's very key to our understanding how to become the vision that God is giving us. Jerusalem is a holy city. Let's talk about Jerusalem a minute. On Wednesday night this past week, we talked about praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is just a place. I've been to Jerusalem. It's very cool. It's very neat. It's very interesting. It's very violent. It's very controversial. It's a strange and wonderful place to be in. You should go sometime. This is the place that God said, this is where my presence will dwell. When Solomon built the temple, when they brought the tabernacle in from the wilderness travelings, Moses had constructed the tabernacle, and God would go and come from the presence of the people, both there and in the tent of meeting outside the camp. When they built the temple, and they built the Holy of Holies, and inside the Holy of Holies was where the ark of God would rest. This is where the presence of God would dwell. You just didn't go walking into the Holy of Holies. Chances are real good you wouldn't survive. That's why annually when the high priest would go in there to offer the sin offering for the nation, he would make sure that there were little bells tied along his robe and there was a rope tied to his ankle. So just in case he died, they could drag him out because nobody wanted to go in and get him. The Holy of Holies, this is the place where God would dwell. It's the center of the nation. It's the center of worship. It's the center of their representation of God for the world to see. Jerusalem was always something bigger than just being a beautiful or well-built city. It was the dwelling place of the Most High God. Just let that soak in. This is why being sent away into exile was such a horrible thing. It wasn't just, oh, you've been defeated, now you got to move. You didn't just leave behind your house. You left behind the place of the dwelling of God. And for these people, this nation, that was horrendous. And so as these folks migrated back, it was with the hope 
that they would be once again in the city where God would dwell and be worshipped and be proclaimed to the world. God with us. But in its current state, as the report came back to Nehemiah from his friends, it's kind of messed up. It's not in good shape at all. The, it's not a, a shining beacon on the hill anymore. The wall is broken and the gates have been burned. Okay? There are several interpretations to the reaction of Nehemiah to this report. Possibly it had been left in this condition since Nebuchadnezzar defeated Jerusalem and tore down the walls of the city, destroyed the temple, tore down the houses, just scattered it everywhere. Nebuchadnezzar made a complete job of it. It could have been back in 597 BC when all that happened, it had just never been built back. It's just hard to, hard to think about that for all this time, this stood so strongly for the nation of God, and now it's just a wasteland, basically. Another idea is his reaction to the report. Some writers think, well, he wouldn't have reacted so strongly. He wept and fasted for days to news that was, you know, like a hundred years old. I mean, after the first group had gone back, surely word would have come back in what bad shape it was in. Maybe when they were rebuilding the temple and trying to rebuild the city, and the king at the time, you know, there were troublemakers all around. We'll get more into that as we go through this. But they sent word back to the king and said, look, if you let these people rebuild their city, then they're just going to be trouble for you in the long run. And so they had to stop the rebuilding. In fact, there were two guys, I think I wrote their name, Rehum and Shimshai, that Artaxerxes had sent to stop the building, rebuilding of the city. And so maybe in their stopping it, they actually knocked it down. This is a mess. This is not going to happen. You have to stop. And they would knock it down. We don't know, but you kind of maybe get a little bit of hint of that out of Ezra 4. But the thing about Jerusalem being built on a hill, having looked at the geography, if it's built on a hill and it slopes down towards the valley and then up the other side is the Garden of Gethsemane, Mount of Olives, going downhill from the city if the city's built on the hill, it wasn't just like everybody walked like this on the side of the hill. It was terraced. There'd be a level that was flattened, and then they'd build a retaining wall. There'd be a level that was flattened a little lower, and then put another retaining wall. And on these flattened areas, that's where they would build their homes and their commerce and their streets. Then there'd be another level. And the last terrace, the last retaining wall, was the wall of the city, the most substantial of all the retaining walls. And when they tore the wall down, with it gone, the whole city literally could be sliding down the hill. It's just not safe. It's not secure. This is the report that he got 
This is the thing that he responded to. The city is in ruins. The wall is torn down. The gates are burned. And it broke Nehemiah's heart. God disciplines the people that he loves. Some of you could probably give me a story. You could testify to God's discipline in your life. When we seek after God, when we pursue God, He's going to bless us. He's going to be with us. But when we fight against God, when we ignore God, He's not going to let you get away with that. You parents who have raised children, when your children are doing what they're supposed to be doing, all the world is good. When they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, as good parents, you just sit back and let them do whatever, right? Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Hopefully, you discipline your children. The old spare the rod, spoil the child thing is up for a lot of interpretations, but my parents believed in it. Mary Kay and I have wanted to raise our children in a disciplined manner. My middle child says, Dad, you should have just beat me every day. I needed more. But we all need a little more. The discipline of God is because He loves us. And even though Nebuchadnezzar took the city in 597 B.C., and the Persians then defeated Nebuchadnezzar and took all the Babylonian lands, or Babylon uh, took all the Babylonian lands, even the lands where all their captives had been exiled to, God disciplines. And He might use Nebuchadnezzar to discipline His children when they've been bad, but then He will discipline Nebuchadnezzar. He won't let His sinfulness stand either. So even in exile, the people were to represent God. I mentioned the verse earlier from Jeremiah, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. Seems to make sense. Ephesians 2 8 and 10 say something very similar. By grace you have been saved through faith. We are His workmanship created, by, created in Christ for good works to which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with them, that we should walk in them, that we should be His stewards. If this people had been set aside, chosen by God to represent Him to the world, and he still had to discipline them, what makes us think that we're going to be any different? We're his church. We're his children. You and I, all on equal ground. So he began to pray. And the prayer of Nehemiah in this first chapter is a good model for us to look at. I want to bring out four or five things that may help you, because sometimes people still ask the questions that the disciples ask of Jesus. Teach us to pray. How do I pray? And when he gave him the model prayer, he didn't just say repeat this prayer over and again, but use this as an idea to craft your own heart before the Lord. So that's what Nehemiah has given us is a good idea of how we should pray. 
Because, see, he's about to take action. He's about to jump in and go before the king. He wants to be all prayed up before he does that. Good lesson for us too, right? Before we attempt something for God, before we step out pursuing this vision that God gives us, we need to be prayed up. And he prayed and he fasted. Some writers will say up to four months between receiving the report and having his heart broken and actually going before the king. Wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Our first prayer lesson here, persistency. Wept and mourned before God for days. Day and night he prayed, day and night he fasted, day and night he sought the Lord. Fasting being used in this case as an expression of sorrow and repentance. You can fast for a number of reasons. Here, Nehemiah is fasting out of sorrow. Prayer is a way of helping align ourselves with God. Are you going to say anything to God that he didn't know? No. Hopefully, as you pray, as you seek the Lord, as you stay in prayer, you're going to be moving yourself into where God wants you to be. You're going to be aligning yourself with God through your prayer. So stay at it. It's asking God, I love this line, asking God to release from heaven what he's already decided to do. Oh, you need to get a hold of that, family. Your prayers, you're asking God to release from heaven what he's already decided to do. He's just waiting for maybe you and I to get in, get in gear, get in line with that. So he wept and mourned for days. He also, there's no doubt who Nehemiah is praying to. One of the first things he did in his prayer was recognize who God is. He will talk about this is the God that we're following. This is the God that I'm addressing. God is transcendent. That means way big, way out there. He is above, high above us. He transcends our thinking about who he is, he transcends our understanding. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. He is bigger. Just kind of get that picture. God is transcendent. The problems of Jerusalem are rooted in spiritual things. They're not rooted because they didn't pay their taxes. They're not rooted because they didn't have a strong enough army to defend them against Nebuchadnezzar. They're rooted in spiritual things. If we focus our minds on our own brokenness, we will stay in the brokenness. If we focus our minds on the God of heaven, we will move beyond our brokenness. Okay? Some of you need to write that one down. You pray over and over and over because you're broken and you just keep pointing out your brokenness to God. He already knows that. You need to see the fullness and the completeness of God. Focus on that. God is both great 
and awesome. He is transcendent. He is great and awesome. These two words in the Scripture, when they're put together side by side like that, it's to add extra oomph to their meaning. It's like saying God is great. He's important. He's of high stature. He supersedes normal and natural stuff. He is great. He is awesome. He is to be feared. So he's great and he's awesome. Together they mean that Nehemiah Nehemiah is praying to the God as he stands in awe of the reality of the one who supersedes everything. Together, great and awesome. God is not only transcendent, he's also imminent. That means he breaks into our circumstances. If all you think of is God out there, God in heaven above, and all that, you're going to miss the joy of God right here. God breaks into our world, breaks into our particular circumstances. Nothing going on in your world that he's not aware of. His steadfast love, his graciousness, his goodness, his loyal love, his faithfulness, that's what his eminent means. The Hebrew word here is chesed. You almost have to kind of push that out, chesed. And it means all those things at one time. Graciousness, love, goodness, faithfulness, chesed. So no doubt who he was praying to, there's also no doubt who he's praying for. He goes into a time of confession of sin. We are not going to be rebuilt to go anywhere until God deals with our sins. That's what he's thinking. That's what we need to be thinking. We want to be rebuilt as a church. We think COVID was the big, big bad beast against our church. No, Satan has been there the whole time doing all kinds of things. We want to be rebuilt. Oh, if we could be back to where we were. That's not even close to where God would want us to be. We want to be rebuilt. But we get to deal with our mess first before we get to deal with God's blessing. And that's the hope that we have in him. I and my father's house have sinned, he will say. I and my father's house will sin. There is an issue of a multi-generational nature and a systemic nature to the impact of sin. Let me just mention a couple of ideas, and you will see what I'm saying. And it applies even broader and wider than these two things, but these two things are pretty plain. Part of our sin as a nation was slavery. And it was systemic. It was everywhere. And it is still impacting our nation today. That sin is still pervasive. Sexual sin has a long-reaching impact. If you give in to sexual sin, it will impact more than just you. Maybe more than just your spouse. Maybe more than just your family. It will have a long... Again, I got back from the Southern Baptist Convention and one of the things they're really working through still is the sexual abuse that's occurred in churches throughout our denomination. And they are trying to make right, make better at least, but make right these situations that have happened. It's having a far-reaching effect and impact 
on our churches and on our witness for the Lord. Sin is just like that. It is so pervasive and it will be systemic not only to you and your generation, but for generations to come. That's why we have to go to war against Satan and sin. The generational sin of Nehemiah's day was the failure to keep the commandments given by Moses. They promised God at their deliverance from Egypt that they would obey His commandments, and they did not. If you return and keep my commandments, you will be gathered. No matter how far I have scattered you, you will be gathered together and covered again by my grace. I like my brother's analogy, I believe it was a couple of weeks ago, about the you know, hash browns, covered and smothered. You know, you just kind of gather them up on your plate, on your plate and you, you get them covered with cheese and smothered and just ready to go. That's what he's saying to the people. You will be gathered together. You will be covered with my grace, smothered with my love and presence. It's okay Let me just say, it's okay to remember this. There's no question of who is reminding who when he begins praying God's words back to him. Okay? He's not trying to, you know, manipulate God and use his words to make God do what Nehemiah wants to do. But it's okay for him to use the words not to control God, but to Act, asking Him to act. Again, sometimes prayer is asking God to release from heaven what He's already decided to do. He makes this comment, they are your servants who you have redeemed through your great power and mighty hand. In Hebrew, when you say hand, it it includes the whole forearm. And in Isaiah 53, 1 through 3, reads, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus, the arm of the Lord. This is the strength of God. This is the deliverance of God. This is the Christ of God, the promised one. The Old Testament guys knew it. We need to know it. And when we pray God's Word, it's okay. You're not manipulating God. You're saying, God, release what you've already planned to do because I've seen it in your Scripture. This is what you've said. Last thing is asking in faith. This is where the ask comes. You know, when you pray, it's okay to ask. But no matter where we are in life, no human is ever sovereign. That's why I say one of the major themes here is the sovereignty of God. No human has power like God. Circumstances are just that. They are circumstantial. They are temporary. And we need to keep that in mind as we follow after God. Whatever our circumstances are surrounding us today, they are temporary. They are not eternal. God is what is eternal. 
So if we are stuck in our circumstances, if we are stuck in the temporary, we're going to miss the bigger picture. We are in Christ and He is in us. He is transcendent. He is imminent over our circumstances at the same time in our circumstances with us. Nehemiah is now ready to go before the king and ask for his help with the Hebrew people. He has prayed. He has fasted. He is going to use his position of influence with the king. He's ready to go. Let me pull this together with a couple of comments. Number one, a city is not merely geography. A city is a people. When you think about Cincinnati, Cincinnati is distinct from any other metropolitan area in the country, and it's because of the people in Cincinnati. We all like Ellie de la Cruz now. He's like all our hero. I heard him say, these are the best fans ever of anywhere. Well, he doesn't know us. <laughs> but he will. We are the people of the city. When you talk about the city, you talk about those who inhabit, those who give it its character, those who give it its personality. All oh, the buildings are nice. The geography is okay. We got a river. Other people have rivers. It's the people that make it what it is. We are God's people now, and we are to represent God to the world. This church, this city set on a hill, the corner of Compton and Daly, this people set on the hill, we are His people. The New Jerusalem is going to be the same idea, people more than place. In Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Oh, that's good things. Be the people of this city of God. And it's not just what a church does that makes it distinctive either. It's what the church is. What is the DNA of who we are? Is that showing God? Is that proclaiming God to the community around us? It's what a church is. Saltiness is not an action. It's character. If you're salty, somebody's talking about your character. The visible tasteable nature of their community is their missional purpose. By encountering that holy nation, others may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Lois Barrett said that. That's a great quote. The visible, tasteable nature of their community is their missional purpose. What do people see when they see us? What do people taste when they taste us? It's who we are. It's our missional purpose to be God before them. Salt of the earth is not something to be taken lightly. Last comment. 
there's actually too much consumerism in the church. What I mean by that is we come to God and we say, God, I need a word from you about this. God, I need you to help me with this. God, I need, God, I need, God, I need. And we come to God telling Him what we need like He doesn't know our shortcomings. If the church becomes what we can get out of it, we're wrong. We need to become who Christ is and what He can give to the world. We are to be His light on the hill to the nations around us. It's not about what you can get out of coming to this church. And I hope you do get some stuff. I hope you do get encouragement and friendship and love. I hope you do get support and joy and strength from coming to this church. Hope you get some good friends. I have. But it's not what I get out of this church that's important. It's who my God is and who I can be through Him to the community. It's time to rebuild. It's time to be on mission with God. This study for us, I think, will be an important in its timing and in its presentation. This study, intentional prayer, intentional vision, intentional living. We have been redeemed in order to represent God. You were not saved just because you were ugly and dirty and sinful. You were also saved to show God. You are His chosen people and all the world through you will be blessed. So, when we send you out today, it'll be to send you out to go pick up your tools and get with it. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving us today. Thank you for watching over us. Thank you for being a good and gracious God. Thank you for being patient with us when we've not been very good about following you. Father God, release from heaven what you've already intended to do. Through these individual lives, as I look out across the folks sitting here, release from heaven what you intend to do through them. Father, release from this church what you intend to do to the community, to the world around us. Father God, we love you. Speak to the hearts of those gathered here today. Speak to those hearts who might be tuning in online. They are not too far away to hear your voice. Father, speak to our hearts. Let us hear and respond in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.